Well, good morning, Phoenix Bible Church. My name is Zach. I'm a community group leader here, uh, and uh, Pastor Tim has asked me to uh, open up this series in Titus. I'm excited for doing that. I told the band if I knew that we were doing 90s throwback, I would have worn pleated khakis and a Hawaiian shirt today to preach in, uh, just to fit in with the theme. All right, no one was in church in the 90s here. Cool. <laughs> Flaming out off the first joke. Good. Um, but yeah, so we are uh, starting a new series uh, in Titus. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a guy named Titus. Um, and so picture with me, if you can, it's kind of a stretch for us, a a uh, young fledgling church with a younger pastor in a city that's known for tourism with warm summers and mild winters in a country that's morally corrupt on the downslide um, and trying to figure out how to do church in that context. I'm, I'm sure we can't relate to that at all today. But that's what we're reading, is a uh, letter to a pastor of some churches on an island called Crete that is in, honestly, a very similar uh, idea than where we are, uh, other than the island in the Mediterranean. We'd have better summers then. But um, just to give you a little bit of uh, some background here, it's going to be kind of a half history lesson to start here, so we have some context for the series. Uh, you see here the island of Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, in the lower right-hand corner is where Jerusalem is. Just above Crete is Corinth and Ephesus. You'll probably recognize some other cities in there, Philippi, Thessalonica. These are other cities where churches were planted uh, by Paul. Uh, we have letters from those cities in our Bible as well. Uh, the uh, letter to Titus is to a person, not necessarily a church. That's why it's Titus rather than uh, you know the letter to Crete. It is a church that was planted sometime after the information we have in Acts 28. So we have the book of Acts, which is kind of a history of the early church. It starts in Jerusalem with the apostles, moves on to as we see the church expand throughout the kind of northern Mediterranean. Um, Paul plants this church sometimes after we have Acts ending there um, and has left Titus there to help establish this church to make it uh, healthier, stronger, uh, and able to kind of survive in a uh, morally corrupt area. Um, so first, why are we even reading a letter written by a guy named Paul? I want to talk a little bit about why Paul uh, is uh, found so often as an author in our New Testament, why we actually read his letters, why we consider them scripture. Um, a little background on Paul. Paul, from uh, Paul's birth, uh, until his appearance in Jerusalem as a persecutor of Christians, we don't have a whole lot of information concerning his life. Um, he was a member of the tribe of Benjamin and a zealous member of the Pharisee party. What that means is he was a part of, he was Jewish, he was a part of the tribe of Benjamin, so that goes all the way back to the founding of the nation of Israel and the 12 sons of Israel. Benjamin's one of his sons, Paul's a descendant of Benjamin. Uh, he was born in a city called Tarsus. Actually, we flip the map back up. Um, Tarsus is in the kind of upper right-hand corner of the Mediterranean Sea. So Paul actually isn't from Jerusalem. That's not where he was born. He was born in a city called Tarsus. It's a Roman uh, city. Um, so he, he was a Roman citizen with that. That comes into play in his missionary journeys in the future. 
Jerome also cites a tradition, Jerome's a church historian, that Paul's forebears were from Galilee. It's not certain whether they moved to Tarsus for commercial reasons or were actually settled there uh, by a, a Syrian ruler during uh, the dispersion of the nation of Israel that we read about in the Old Testament. Uh, the fact that Paul was a Roman citizen indicates that they had been there a while, though he was born in that city uh, to have citizenship. Um, Paul describes himself as a Hebrew, born of Hebrews, so he was a full Jew whose family maintained the Jewish customs. His Hebrew name, and what we kind of first meet him as in Acts, is Saul. Uh, his Roman or Greek name is Paul. That's the name he goes by as he starts on his missionary journeys uh, throughout the Roman world. Um, Roman citizenship was obtained by birth uh, through Roman parents uh, or through uh, 25 years of service in military. So likely his parents were Roman as well. We have no information of him being a soldier. Um, to possess Roman citizenship meant that they had privileges in private, criminal, and civil law. It also implied duties in taxation and military service. Um, this became important because it gave Paul some access in the Roman cities that he wouldn't have probably had if he wasn't a Roman citizen. So as he goes through these missionary journeys in God's providence, he, Paul was born as a Roman citizen to allow him to come to these cities and have a little bit more credibility. Um, as kind of a side note, if you ever see art uh, from uh, the, the like medieval period, you'll see uh, Paul with a sword often. Um, and uh, Peter, they usually, if they're depicted together, Peter has a, a cross. Part of the reason that Paul has a sword is because of, as a Roman citizen, uh, he couldn't be executed by, as in the form of crucifixion. Uh, they considered it too barbaric for Roman citizens. And so that was, Paul actually faced a different form of execution than crucifixion, which is what many of the other apostles faced. Um, the fact that uh, young Saul, Paul, came to Jerusalem to study indicates his parents were probably well-to-do. So he came to Jerusalem to study uh, under a Jewish rabbi named Gamaliel. He was a very prominent Jewish rabbi. So Paul's under the best teaching, thinking think he's at Oxford under the best professors as far as Jewish study. Um, also, his uh, accessibility to kind of the higher-level echelon in the cities he had he reached also indicates that he had some sort of standing, that his family had some sort of wealth or uh, prominence that would allow uh, him to even have an audience with uh, leaders of the communities and, and cities that he went to in the Roman world. Paul was clearly able to have access to the elites in the Greek and Roman cities in which he preached the gospel. He probably spoke Greek uh, along with Aramaic and Hebrew. Um, he probably became a Pharisee in connection with his education in Jerusalem um, he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, I mentioned. Uh, he was given official authority to direct the persecution of Christians as a member of the synagogue or Sanhedrin council. Um, in light of Paul's education and early prominence, um, we can assume he had prominent status. He also had access to the Jerusalem council of Sanhedrin. Uh, that would have indicated some prominent status as well. So Paul first appears to us in scripture in Acts chapter 8 in a very uh, different way than what you'd expect for someone who authored so much of our Bible. Paul first appears in scripture at the beginning of Acts 8, approving of the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen. So he uh, presides over the first execution of a Christian. 
Uh, we see Paul's story progress as he obtains permission to pursue Christians who have fled Jerusalem and are spreading the news of Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, he actually is on his way to Damascus where Paul is dramatically converted when Jesus confronts him and gives him direction that Paul leads, that leads Paul to discovering his calling to be a missionary. Um, if you haven't read the story of Paul's conversion, it's in Acts chapter 9. Uh, Jesus, who has ascended into heaven at this point, literally meets Paul on the road to Damascus, knocks him off his horse, and uh, blinds him, and says, why are you persecuting me? And uh, Paul dramatically comes into Damascus, is converted, and immediately begins missionary journey. So he goes from looking to destroy and wipe out the church that he saw as a heretical sect of Judaism to becoming one of the most prominent missionaries we've ever had in our history of Christianity. Um, and the story is fantastic. Um, it's this encounter with the risen Christ that Paul appeals to as his claim to apostleship. So generally, apostles are seen as Jesus' disciples. They were firsthand witnesses to Jesus' ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection. Um, Paul has a... Uh, a kind of a special status because Jesus does actually appear to him uh, in, after being resurrected in his conversion attempt. So that's why he's considered apostle as well. And he was actually accepted by the uh, Jerusalem church as an apostle. So he was accepted by the other disciples as an apostle uh, basically immediately. So Paul went on to establish numerous churches throughout the northeastern Mediterranean, primarily in modern-day Turkey and Greece. After establishing a church and moving on, he would often keep his correspondence with these churches through letters sent back to the churches, often in response to reports received regarding their uh, condition. In addition to letters written to the congregations, Paul also wrote letters to his ministry partners, who often would remain in areas of newly planted churches or return to areas that might be in crisis. Uh, so Titus is one of these letters. So who's Titus? Titus was one of Paul's co-laborers during his missionary activity. Uh, Titus was serving on the island of Crete, helping this newly formed church establish leadership and retain sound doctrine. As with many of Paul's church plants, there are false teachers trying to influence the new churches, either by adding to or taking away from the gospel. Crete, much like the city of Corinth, was known throughout the ancient world for their immorality. So think Las Vegas, Amsterdam, times 10. Uh, moral corruption throughout. Um, often there was prostitution tied with the temple worship. Uh, very, very uh, morally decayed society that these churches are trying to now uh, expose the gospel to, live according to the gospel, and proclaim Jesus to these people. So what's the theme of this book? What's the idea of, behind this book? The primary theme of Titus is there's an inseparable link between faith and practice, belief and behavior. And so what we can learn from this book and what a, is what a healthy church looks like. But primarily for you as an individual, we can learn from that what it looks like to be a healthy Christian. So healthy churches are built up of healthy Christians. And so when we read through these uh, passages in the next uh, few weeks, it's written to a leader of a church. It's written about things that are happening in the church and how to structure the church. But don't get lost in all that and think that it doesn't apply to you. Because ultimately, the building blocks of a healthy church are healthy Christians. And so, one, we need to be aware of what Scripture prescribes for a healthy church. And two, what your responsibility is and what your role is in that healthy church. And so that's the primary thing I want you to take away today is this idea that faith and practice, belief and behavior, those are inseparably linked. You can't have one without the other. 
They come together, they're tied together, and, and there's no way around it. So we have a little context now of the book, a little history lesson for you. Um, let's actually take a look at the text. We know the characters uh, and start working through Titus. If you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Titus. If you have one of uh, the Bibles around you, it's page 646. I'll give you the shortcut there. Um, it's a really small book. If you're flipping through, if you get to First and Second Timothy, slow down. If you hit Hebrews, you went too far. In about the last quarter third of your uh, Bible, okay? All right, so Titus 1.1 says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. As I mentioned earlier, Paul was a man with a really impressive resume. Um, he had the Roman citizenship. He had the great Jewish education. Um, but look how he introduces himself here. He introduces himself as a servant of God on behalf of whom God has chosen so that they might grow in their faith and knowledge, which brings about godliness. And so if you think about that today, our culture puts so much emphasis on what we can do and what we have done. As students in high school, we're taught to get the right extracurricular activities, the right test scores so that we can get into the right school. And then when we get to, the co to college, we have to, again, do the right extracurricular activities. We have to take the right classes, get the right degree, get the right GPA so we can put that all on a resume. And then when we graduate, we put our degree at the end of our name on our email signatures. We put it on the end of our name on our LinkedIn profiles just to make sure that everyone knows what we've already accomplished and what we're qualified to do. Um, when we meet new people, we ask them, what do you do? And we're always asking them, basically, how successful are you? What do you do for a living, and how successful are you? We put so much value and worth in what we do, and we, put so, and we perceive so much of people's value and their authority uh, in what comes from their accomplishments, real or perceived. But we see here Paul who had all the worldly credentials you could need at the time, firmly planting his authority in God's sovereign election and his appointment. It's only because God's ongoing appointment that Paul had, writes with any authority and any conviction. It's only uh, because of the Holy Spirit's inspiration that we even read Paul's letters today. It's because... It is an authority not based on who Paul is, but who God is and what God called, called Paul to do. That's why we look at letters written by Paul and study them as scripture, because they're not the words of Paul. They're the words of God inspired and written through Paul. Paul writes about this a little bit in another letter to uh, the church in Philippi, Philippians 3. He kind of gives his resume here and explains how he feels about it. So Philippians 3.3, 3, it says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's humble. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, everything, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's this point of view that allows Paul to write to Titus and call himself a servant of Christ and that he's there to serve the church. Not, I'm Paul, here's my resume, listen to what I say. It's because he understands that all his worldly accomplishments, all his worldly uh, accolades mean nothing in light of the fact that God had called him, chosen him, saved him, and sent him out on a mission to spread the gospel to the world. Brothers, sisters, we must not rely on our own works to find any sort of authority, worth, or identity. For we will all let ourselves down at some point, and then what? We have to find our value, our worth, in being saved by God through the work of Jesus Christ and being kept by the work of the Holy Spirit. So this is a worth and a value that doesn't have anything to do with us, but has everything to do with an eternal God. This is honestly something that I struggle and fight with constantly. I deal with depression and anxiety. A lot of that comes tied to with my work and what I do. I have to remind myself of this daily, just to kind of keep myself together often, that my value and worth has nothing to do with the, the depression that I face or the anxiety. That doesn't mean I have any less value or worth. The job that I do that isn't the career that I thought it was, it's not necessarily what I think God ultimately has called me to do. That has nothing to do with my value or worth. My value or worth comes completely in the fact that God's saved me and that he's appointed me to be in the position I am right now for this reason, for this season, and that in that, I can know that, that God's put me where he wants me to be, and so I have value and worth because God's not just randomly throwing things out. He's got a plan. He's got a mission for me where I'm at. We can't use this value and worth then to lord it over other people because it doesn't come from us. It's not something we've earned. So you can't turn around and be kind of puffed up with this pride of like, oh, God's chosen me, so I'm great. And uh, all you sinners, you're losers. Well, no, because it's all coming from God. It's not coming from what you've done. And so with that, rather than using it to lord over others, we should actually serve others humbly, knowing we deserve far worse than to be called into the family of God. It's also from this first verse that we get, we see the theme of the book, this idea that faith and understanding lead to godliness. A believer's life must be marked by both faith and knowledge, which will result in different behavior. So again, faith and practice, belief and behavior, they're inseparable. You can't do one without the other. We as believers are committed to service to God, our Savior, and growth towards godliness. Paul continues in verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So this godliness that we're growing in, it's not a godliness that just gives us the ability to live a morally superior life today, that we can uh, somehow obey the commands of God today and somehow be better than everyone else because of that. This godliness actually provides a hope for us. It provides a hope of eternal life. And this isn't a hope in the sense of like, oh, I hope the Dodgers win today or, oh, I hope I get a raise. This is in the sense that I have a certain assurance that God's in control, that God's chosen me, that as I grow in godliness, God's plan will work out in my life, not only in this life, but also 
after we die, that we can be assured that we will be reunited with Christ, with God, and that we will be able to uh, enjoy his presence forever. So it's not just a matter of length of existence when we talk about eternal life, but it's the quality of life. We experience it in this life by having hope and trusting in that the persecution, trials, and pain of this life is not all there is. That's a huge hope for people like myself struggling with depression, knowing that this is still the worst it could get, is this life, is a huge hope. And that may sound really dark to some people. That's okay. I'm dark. That's how it works. Um, but but there's, there's some great hope and great assurance in knowing that, that I'm held and kept by God in this life and that after this life is over, I'll be reunited with him. Death and sin is going to be abolished. Depression and anxiety is going to be gone. That, that's, like, that's something to cling on to. That's something that helps you get out of bed in the morning, that gets you to work, that helps you be able to interact with people. Um, it's something I've really had to work to grasp this week. Um, being reminded as I, as I prepared for this that that God's got a hold of me, and that no matter how bad life seems to thrash me around now, that, that I have a hope and an assurance that, that this is a temporary period. Whether, it's, whether the depression, the anxiety, the frustration lasts the rest of my life, it's still temporary. That ultimately, I'm going to be glorified, I'm going to be with God, I'm going to experience God's presence, I'm not going to experience depression anymore, I'm not going to have family members that um, pass away. Like, we're not going to lose family anymore. We're not going to have to deal with the pain that we see on the news, the, the, the just depravity that we see in our society. All that's gone. Like, that's going to happen someday for us if we have our faith in Christ. That's a certainty. That's not a, man, I hope this ends someday. That's not a, oh, I hope this election cycle ends up right. That's... I have a certain hope that in the end, God's going to win and that he's got me in his hand. It also gives us a mission. It gives us a mission to give this world a taste of what that world's going to be like. To bring a little bit of God's kingdom into the lives of the people that we interact with to show them that hope, that certainty, that perseverance. And that's not to pretend that everything's great. That's not to pretend that you don't struggle with pain, loss, grief. It's that in the midst of that, we still have that certainty, that hope, that Christ has redeemed us, and that we can bring just a little taste of, of, of what our future holds, and hopefully be used by God in that to draw more people unto him to be a part of God's redemptive action, God's plan to save people, simply by us being obedient and just being sure of our faith and having our faith affect how we act, having our beliefs affect our behavior. We can have certainty in this through our faith and knowledge. We see the story of God unfold through the pages of Scripture where we see over and over again his faithfulness to keep his promises this is in really stark contrast with humanity, who we see over and over again fall short of their promises. We're powerless to keep all of our promises. 
We see this pattern repeated in the Old Testament. We just went through a series that kind of highlighted that. We see Abraham fail, fall short of the promises he makes. We see Israel in the period of the judges with leaders like Samson fall short of what their responsibility is, what their promises are, what their covenant is with God. We see that moving forward into the New Testament. We see guys like Peter who are like, I'll never deny you, and then trembles in fear to a 13-year-old girl and denies Christ. We even see it in the, later on in this letter where Paul actually says that the Cretans are always liars. And we see it today in our own lives. I mean, stop and be honest and think about it. How often have you been driven to your knees making promises to God either in repentance or trying to bargain only to turn around and break them and fall short over and over again? But yet despite all the times we fall short, all the times that humanity's fallen short, we can see through the story of Scripture God stays faithful. God's promises remain, and we can trust in those. And so because of that, we can have a hope, a certain hope of eternal life because we know God does not lie. He holds to his promises, and he promised this before the ages began. His promise, his decision to save you and keep you was decided before he even created the earth. Stop and think about that. God chose to save you before the earth was created, before you existed. He knew that he would save you. And we have all of history to look back on and see that God will not fail in the promises that he has. We can take hope in that. Not just a, oh man, I hope this works out. But a, I have a certain faith that I can do this, that we can, that we can make it through this life because we know that God's got us in his hand. So we as believers are committed to hope and eternal life from a God who never fails, never lies, and is sovereign over all. Verse three, and at the proper time, he manifested it in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our savior. God's chosen a specific method by which he reveals himself and his will. That's by the proclamation of his word, proclamation of scripture. We see this throughout scripture as well. We see in the Old Testament, prophets and priests, they would gather the people together, they'd read the law, and then they would explain it to the people so the people could be obedient to the law, that they could learn from the law, they could have their hearts changed by the law. We see it in the New Testament with the apostles, with evangelists, with even Jesus himself preaching at times, explaining scripture so that the hearers' lives would be changed, their hearts would be changed. It's through the preaching of the word that God softens the sinner's heart and continues to transform each of us into his image. Now that doesn't mean the only way that it happens is Sunday morning with me or with Tim or someone else up here preaching. That's not the only time that God changes changes hearts. The idea is not who's doing the proclamation or how it's done, it's what's being proclaimed. It's that scripture is being proclaimed, the words of God are being proclaimed. That's the only thing that's going to change people's hearts. All this happens according to his timing as well. So be encouraged in that when you're sharing the gospel with people, when you're preaching the word in different settings, when you're a community group leader leading a community group, when you interact with family members who are unbelievers, Understand God's timing is involved in this too. So you can be obedient, but ultimately God's the one that changes the heart. It's God's timing to do it. So if things don't go perfect the first time, 
don't disqualify yourself saying, well, I clearly can't. I didn't change that person's mind. I can't convert anyone. I'll never, I'm not an evangelist, I guess. That's often what we go to. It's like, well, I'm not very good at it, so uh, I, don't, I don't do a lot of evangelism. Well, the good news is it has nothing to do with you other than you being obedient. Evangelism is really you being obedient and getting an opportunity to be a part of what God's going to do. It's not about you making something happen or, or changing someone or convincing them. It's, it's about God changing their heart and you just being obedient and being an instrument to do that. And so this is why we have sermons during worship services. That's why we don't sing the entire service on Sunday morning. Um, that's why we uh, don't just kind of have self-help, feel-good talks here. It's why we go through books of the Bible, because Scripture is what changes hearts and what changes lives. It's not uh, providing a few points to make you feel a little bit better about your day or about your life or give you a method or two to cope with whatever you're facing. It's not to gain some, some Bible trivia knowledge that you can impress your friends with. It's preaching is the proclamation and explanation of the very words of God. It's vital for a healthy church, it's vital for evangelism. It's vital for growing in godliness. It's for this reason we see the author of Hebrews says to not forsake the gathering uh, with believers. It's because when we come together and we hear the word preached and we worship together, God moves in our hearts. It changes our hearts. It grows us more in godliness. This isn't to diminish personal or group study of scripture. Those are equally important, but it's also not to diminish the need to be able to just hear the word taught sometimes. So we as believers are committed to the authority of Scripture and the means that God has chosen to communicate his gospel. Verse 4, finally, Paul says to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So being separated by almost 2,000 years and a completely foreign culture, we might lose the weight of what Paul's statement uh, is here about Titus. So I mentioned earlier about how Paul was raised as a strict uh, adherent to Judaism, that he followed the purity laws, that he followed the, the Torah, that he uh, worked very hard and was very diligent in being a, a good Jew. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. Now, if you remember, if you've read the Gospels, those are guys that are very concerned with their purity and with keeping the law down to the sense that they would actually tithe off of their herbs. I mean, they were serious about following God's law. That's who Paul was. Titus, on the other hand, was completely Gentile. He was a Greek. He was unclean. By every purity and ritual law, he was not part of the family of, of God. Any Pharisee would have probably avoided even interacting with him or getting anywhere near him. They would definitely have not ever shared plates or cups or anything with this man because he was unclean. They thought he would defile them and make them unclean before God. Paul calls Titus his true child in a common faith. That's the amazing part of the gospel is that we see this transition from the Old Testament where God's chosen a, a people, an ethnic group of people to be his people, to be his representative to the world, to we see the obedience of Christ who actually fulfills all the responsibilities and promises that Israel should have followed. And by his death, burial, and resurrection, it no longer requires you to be 
of a certain ethnic background to be part of the family of God. It doesn't require you to follow a certain list of rules before you can be considered fully Jewish or go through a certain set of rituals. The family of God's been opened up for adoption to anyone. That's good news for most of us because if you're not Jewish, you shouldn't, we wouldn't be in if we were still under the Old Testament system. We see now a new people of God, a new family, united by faith and brought into the family of God through the work of Jesus. Because our identities are found in our salvation, that gives us the ability to give grace to one another and to experience a deep-seated peace. And so I mentioned from verse 1 this idea that, that we can't rely on our own accomplishments and our own uh, status to kind of give ourselves worth. Another byproduct of that is that if we understand that, that we're only a part of God's family because God has adopted us into this family, that we come into this family with empty hands, we have nothing to bring, then we can extend grace to other people within that family, that we can care for each other, that we can love each other because we all are in the same family, we're all, we're all evened out. We all have the same value, the same worth, not one of us is more important than another. Paul talks about uh, in Corinthians the idea that, that we're a body and that a body can't say, oh, I don't need the eyes, oh, I don't need this hand, that, that every part is equally important. And in that we can experience a peace of knowing that, that as a part of the body of Christ, as a family here at PBC, we don't need to prove anything. We don't need to try to impress anyone. We're free of that. We don't need, uh, you know, to, that's, we don't struggle to impress Pastor Tim to get a certain position or to whatever ministry you want to be involved in that you have to prove yourself in any way. We can just take a deep breath, relax, realize we're part of a family and serve and love each other well. That, that's going to bring a deep-seated peace to your life. It also allows us to care for each other as a family, not only locally, but globally. That we as Americans, and I'm not saying necessarily here, but there's a tendency to see ourselves as a little bit superior to the rest of the world. Uh, whether you want to base that on, oh, we were a Christian nation, or we're economically more powerful, or whatever thing makes you feel like we're more important, we as Christians can't have that attitude. We can't think of ourselves as more important than a different area uh, of the city that may have a different socioeconomic status. We can't think of ourselves as less than another area that may have a different socioeconomic status, but we also can't think of ourselves as um, more important or, or more fortunate or somehow more worthy because we're in America than our brothers and sisters in Africa or in Asia or in Southeast Asia. We had someone uh, that was part of our church, one of our interns that spent the summer in a country that uh, he actually met people who'd never heard the gospel. They've never had exposure to a Christian before that he met them. Like that's crazy that there's Christians in that country that we can't be like, oh, like they're not as they're not quite as blessed as us. We need to care for them as much as we care for our own family. 
So we as believers are committed to a family, as a family to one another, experiencing grace and peace, giving grace to each other. And so again, if our beliefs affect our actions, they affect our behaviors, we can know this. We can go, oh, we're all equal. What are you doing to show that? Do you extend grace and peace to people when you have conflict with them within the church? Do you truly care about every believer throughout the world as equally as you do the one down the street from you? And that's not to say that you have to drop everything you're doing and go to another country and do missions work or serve another church. If God's calling you to do that, you should go do that. doesn't mean we all do that, but we all need to be caring about our global family, that we need to care about the fact that, that all of us have been adopted that we're all loved and that we're all equally valued by God. So the reason we're equally valued by that, if you've never been to church, you've never been a part of that, the reason that we can talk about this, and I've kind of alluded to it a couple times, this idea of salvation and being saved and being chosen. The story of scripture is the story of God redeeming people back to himself, the idea of bringing people back into a right relationship with God. So God, it starts in the beginning of the book of Genesis, God creates the earth, and by the third chapter, humanity rebels against God, and sin enters the world, and it's just a downhill slide from there. And we see over and over again, we see where God punishes, where God renews his covenant, where God uh, rescues his people over and over again. And every time that happens, there's a promise that there's a coming solution. And it's even alluded to in the very chapter that, that humanity actually rebels, that, that there will be one that comes that crushes the snake's head that's going to redeem us back to our right relationship. When we hit the New Testament, we see the story of Jesus. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is God's solution. Jesus came to earth, fully God, fully man, lived a life that none of us could live. He actually fulfilled all the requirements and the promises uh, that were upon us through the law. He's the only person to have ever done that. And then he went to the cross and died a death that became a substitutionary death for us. Paul writes in Romans that the wages of sin is death. Jesus died that death for us. He was buried and he rose again, defeating death. That by that, our debt's been paid and that he has power over death. So he has the ability to redeem us. And all that's required of us is to put our faith in him. And so if you haven't done that, if you're new to that, if you're not sure about that, but you feel like God's calling you, like you feel kind of a pull right now, like stop listening to me. Start talking to Jesus Start thinking through the things in your life that, that you, you need to repent of. Put your faith in knowing that Jesus can save you, that Jesus can give you a hope in this life, a certainty in this life, that you can look forward to an eternal life with him, without sin, without death, without pain, without suffering. So how does this change our life based on what we've learned from this passage. Let's recap a little bit here. So one, if you're taking notes, this, this would be the, the distilled version for you right here. One, we plant our value, worth, and authority in what God has given us, not in what we have accomplished on our own. And that value and authority 
leads to a heart of service for God and others. We plan our value, worth, and authority in what God has given us, which leads to a heart of service to God and others. Two, our faith in Christ and our knowledge of him and his word must result in greater godliness. There's an inseparable link between belief and behavior. And often we fall on one side or the other. Often for me, it's I know what the scriptures say. I, I know what the truth is, but my behavior doesn't reflect it. Whether that's in pursuing sinful desires or if that's in not showing trust in the promises that God's given me. That's where my tendency is, is, is knowledge is heavy, but sometimes my faith uh, is filled with doubt. And that's, there's a balance there. You have to have faith and knowledge, and that's going to lead to behavior. So our faith in Christ and our knowledge of him and his word must result in greater godliness. Three, we have a hope in knowing that our faith will result in eternal life because it's promised to us by God who has shown himself faithful. We have a promise given to us by an unchanging, all-powerful, sovereign God. We can trust in him. Number four, we are united, not just locally, but globally with other believers. We must have the same care for our fellow brothers and sisters locally and globally that we do for our own family, regardless of our backgrounds and our baggage. For Paul to call Titus his son was just completely taboo. Any, anyone that was ad adherent to the Jewish faith would have been appalled by that. But Paul can boldly proclaim that because he knows it's no longer about ethnic identity and it's no longer about anything he's done or any purity he's followed. It's simply that he has come into the family of God with empty hands and because of that he can call anyone that's in the family of God his brother, his sister, his son, his daughter. So as we continue in this series, in this book of Titus, what our hope is that you'll see this inseparable link between faith and practice, between belief and behavior. That you'd be convicted of sinful practices and behaviors that don't line up with what we profess. And that through that, we, like this church on Crete, this young church in a morally questionable culture, we'd be strengthened as a whole as we individually pursue greater godliness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending Paul to be a missionary, to prompting him to write these letters that we can read, that we can learn about who we are, who you are, what you've done for us. Help us as we continue in the next coming weeks as we study Titus to see this link between our belief and our behavior and how they can't be separate from one each other, but that they feed off of each other. And that through that, as we read about what a healthy church looks like and these different aspects and these different ideas of doctrine, that we understand that this isn't some theoretical thing that we are going to put on the website here as our statement of faith, but it's the results of us pursuing godliness by growing in knowledge by having faith in you, by trusting in you, knowing that we can trust the promises that you've given us. Thank you for sending us Jesus to die in our place. To give us a hope 
in a world that's just so broken and filled with pain. And thank you for the Holy Spirit, the down payment, the promise that we have that, that you have redeemed us, that you have saved us, and that we can trust in you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.